Perhaps you wonder at times why we pray for other churches, and uh, I'm so thankful for Clayton's leadership in that today. Um, I read in a book this past week about another pastor who regularly prays for other churches and their worship services, and the way he put it was, I see that people all around me are starving, and I'm less concerned that they come to my restaurant to get that food to solve their problem than that they get food, period. And that's how we feel about it. That's why we pray for other churches, is we realize that as long as the gospel is being faithfully preached, uh, we want people to be sitting under the Word of God. And the Word of God is what changes people's lives. The Word of God is what changes churches as a whole. The Word of God is what changes society as a whole. And so we are less concerned that our little mini-kingdom grows than we are concerned that the kingdom of God at large grows. So I hope that encourages you and that you will continue to pray for other churches as well and for Christians in other places. Please take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 8. We'll be reading today verses 22 through 39. Throughout this book, Luke is answering two questions. The first is, who is Jesus? And that's a significant portion of our passage today, but it's a significant portion of this entire book of Luke. And a second question that he's asking and answering, essentially implying to ask and certainly uh, actually answering is, what does it look like to follow Jesus? Who follows Jesus? And is it an easy path or is it a hard path? And how should I live and who should I love? And these kinds of questions. What does it look like to follow Jesus? These are the two primary questions that Luke is asking and answering throughout this book. And when we read passages like the one that's before us today, verses 22 through 39 of chapter 8, we often jump immediately to the question, how does this passage help me? Like, how does this passage speak to my questions and my needs and my heart? And I want to urge you to hold off on that instinct, to not jump straight from the text to personal application. There's, there's other maybe destinations we need to go to before we get to that one. Um, so don't Im- immediately move from, how does this passage help me with my storm? How does this passage help me with my demons, which I kind of hate when we say, you know, I'm wrestling with demons, personally speaking. Uh, Instead, before you get to that application step, pause and marvel at what this passage says about Jesus. Stand in awe. Put your hand over your mouth at who Jesus is and what he does, what he has done. And so follow along as I read, please, uh, and simply sit in awe at who Jesus is as you hear me read this aloud, in, beginning in verse 22 of chapter 8 in the Gospel of Luke. One day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. 
when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. On a fall day in 1987, people, wealthy investors, crowded into a Manhattan ballroom to be introduced to the new CEO for a company called Alcoa, which is short for Aluminum Company of America. And these wealthy investors have given tens of thousands of dollars, if not more, to this corporation, have lots of stock involved, uh, invested in them. We're curious to see who this new CEO was and what his priorities were going to be for this company. And as they milled around, they sat down and this man got up, his name was Paul O'Neill, and he started to Uh, describe who he was and what his experience was and what his priorities were going to be for this aluminum company. This is the company that, you know, makes Coca-Cola cans and wrappers for Hershey's Kisses and pieces that go on satellites in space. So very uh, diverse uh, manufacturing company. But as he started to talk and share what his priorities were going to be, people started to get a little bit antsy and kind of looking at each other like, what is he talking about? Because all he prioritized that day was worker safety, doing things better so that people miss fewer days on the job because they stuck their hand in hot lava, hot, 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 you know, aluminum, basically. And uh, they're, they're just getting down to really the nuts and bolts of worker safety. And he's going so far as to say now, if in the unusual case of an emergency, while we're in here, there's a fire, the Emergency exits are there and there, and people are just kind of starting to whisper to each other, like, what is this guy talking about? Who does he think he is, and who does he think we are? But as they uh, came to the end of the meeting, people started to rush out of the ballroom and run to a payphone, which is what you did in 1987, and call other investors and say, sell all your stock right now because this company is going to the wasteland. This is the beginning of the end. This company is going downhill fast. People were skeptical because they wanted to hear him say things about boosting profits or cutting costs. 
And instead, they heard about safety exits and what to do in an emergency. People had no idea who this guy was. They had never heard of him before. And they were significantly questioning whether they should listen to him at all, especially considering his first message to them. The reception that Jesus received throughout Galilee was very similar. People were swarming around him, wanting to see him call down fire from heaven on their national enemies. Instead, he's telling a story about a guy throwing seeds into the ground. That's what we studied last week. How does this fit with our image of who the Messiah would be? Surely this guy can't be who he says he is if he's not doing what we expect him to do. And we too are uncertain about whether we can believe Jesus to be who he says he is. Maybe this uncertainty shows up in your life when you face temptations of various kinds, perhaps to worry about finances or your health or your children or politics. And this passage speaks into those very fears and many others. This passage tells us this morning that Jesus, the Messiah, rules over all creation. And so the response that is implied in this passage is that we as those who follow Jesus, we as humans in general, should bow before him in wonder. This passage shows us that Jesus, as the Messiah who rules over all creation, rules over both visible creation and invisible creation. And so here in verses 22 through 25, Jesus rules over storms. And Jesus tells these people to get into a boat, and that boat was probably about as long as this stage from one side to the other, but it was probably only about seven, eight feet wide. I'm 6'4", so my wingspan is 6'4", in other words. And so basically add a foot to this, and that's about as wide as the boat was and about as long as this stage. And they're going to go across a a body of water that's significant, but certainly not as large as as Lake Michigan or anything like that. But... You know, you ask the question, why did he want to get into this boat in the first place? And he says, we want to go to the other side of the the lake. Well, what's on the other side? Well, generally speaking, Gentiles, non-Jewish people. So it seems that Jesus is actually going across the lake in order to preach the message of the gospel, the kingdom of God, to other people who were unfamiliar with this message, perhaps where there would be even a better reception than there were in his own homeland, because as we've seen in other passages, he was not being received well in his own homeland, his own hometown. It's also possible, though, as we think about this passage with a, a theological lens, understanding that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, that perhaps the Holy Spirit had informed him that they should go across the lake in order to put his disciples in a position where they would see Jesus in his true colors as the king of all creation and thereby be really forced to depend on him, to put their faith in him. We know from other passages from the Bible as a whole that God ordains uncomfortable circumstances so that he can demonstrate his power in our lives and bring us to dependent faith on him. And so perhaps that's what's going on here. And even in that statement, we're reminded that our comfort, our stability, our happiness is not God's highest priority. I know it's our highest priority. And even as as Josh said in the prayer of confession this morning, we tend to minimize other people's health and happiness and joy 
at the expense of our own. But God's not going to do that. Our happiness is not God's highest priority, and our comfort is not God's highest priority. And so it would not be out of character by any means for God to really orchestrate and ordain this circumstance in such a way that then these people, these disciples, are forced to recognize who Jesus is and turn in faith to him to a, in, a, in a deeper way. And even as we read this passage, perhaps you thought of other passages of Scripture that come to mind. Uh, perhaps the story of Jonah comes to mind. There are some parallels here of a man getting in a boat to go to the other side, sleeping in that boat, and being woken up in a terrible storm. But unlike Jonah, who could basically do nothing besides jump out of the boat in order to stop the storm, Jesus was ruling over it completely, showing that he is the true and better prophet. He calmly ruled the storm where Jonah could do nothing but panic. Perhaps as the disciples were in this boat and beginning to experience this storm, other passages from the Psalms would come to mind recognizing that God is the ruler over the winds and seas throughout the Bible and especially in the Psalms. These disciples knew that. They would have known their Old Testament very well. And so even as they recognized, uh, even as they saw Jesus demonstrate his power over the winds and the waves, as this passage goes on here, perhaps other Psalms would have come to mind, like Psalm 107. And listen to this extended passage in Psalm 107. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep, for He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. That's exactly what they're encountering here in these early verses. They mounted up to heaven. In other words, they're riding the waves uh, high up toward heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. Does that not sound like these guys saying, Master, Master, we are perishing? They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and He brought them to their desired haven, to the other side of the lake. And so as these disciples wake up Jesus, perhaps only so that he can help throw water out of the boat. But perhaps because they have seen him do amazing things and they think maybe he's got one more left in him. <laughs> and this would be the time to use it if he does. And as he wakes up at their urgent pleas and calms the storm, perhaps this passage came to mind and they thought, who is this? What in the world? There is no one who can calm winds and waves except God. And he just did it. That's exactly the point. This whole passage is Christological, is theological, is designed to make us think, who is Jesus? And to answer that question with, Jesus is God. Who then is this that he commands winds and water and they obey him? Clearly the answer is, he is God. And so they marvel. As you would expect, they are in awe. And the passage even says that that they marveled in in verse 25. And that's been happening throughout Jesus' life. Just go back to chapter 2, where Jesus is a 12-year-old boy teaching in a synagogue. And what did people do when they heard the questions that he was asking and the answers that he was giving? They marveled. 
in chapter 2. And in chapter 4, they hear Jesus teaching in uh, uh, the Nazarene synagogue, really back in his hometown, and people are saying, isn't this Joseph's boy? Like, who is this guy who's saying all these things? And they were marveling at the content and at the spirit with which he taught and his humility. And so here people are marveling again. And this is going to continue throughout the book of Luke. Remember, Mary pondered the things in her heart that the Lord showed her, uh, even at Jesus' birth. And then shortly later on when, when uh, Jesus was just doing amazing things as a child, she's pondering these things. She's wondering about them. And this is the response that, that people are continuing to have throughout Jesus' life. People were standing in awe of him. And that is the right response to see who Jesus is, to see what he does, and to put your hand over your mouth and say, I've never seen anything like this before. I want to worship this God. We should go a step further, though, and not just marvel, but trust him. Find rest in our souls, knowing that Jesus rules the storms. And this is true both physically when you, when you hear the tornado sirens going off or you hear a clap of thunder nearby your house, and it's, it's terrifying, The storms of life are in his hand, and that's true both physically and metaphorically. You can walk through life, through a diagnosis that you didn't anticipate or want, through the loss of income, through enduring a difficult boss or coworkers, through car troubles, knowing that you're never exactly sure if your car is going to start, through the aches and pains of life, and these are all part of his mercy toward you, even when your life feels like it's suffocating. When you would do anything to change your circumstances and deal with somebody else's problems for once instead of your own. But you can walk through your life with abundant peace and contentment, which is itself one of the most wonderful gifts that God gives us as his people, is the gift of Christian contentment. An uh, uh, English Puritan about 400 years ago called it the rare jewel of Christian contentment in a beautiful book that he wrote named Jeremiah Burroughs the rare jewel of Christian contentment, you can know that whatever comes your way has been vetted through the wisdom and mercy and compassion of God himself as our Father. He has filtered out whatever would ultimately harm you. So you don't have to wonder, is this God getting back at me for some sin that I committed? For some bad decision? For the fact that I'm out of the will of God? No, this is not that. This is God's mercy to you. This is God's kindness to you, and he wants to give you peace. So you call his promises to mind in the storms of life. So you memorize and meditate on truth. You think about it over and over again. You ask friends to pray for you and with you, and you do what's right. In the storms of life, what should you do? You should get out of bed. You should make your bed. You should do the dishes. You should fold the laundry. You should go to your job. You should write your paper. You should do what's right. Put one foot in front of the other while acknowledging that your life is in God's hands and take life one moment at a time, realizing that Jesus is in the storm with you. Jesus rules over the storms in verses 22 through 25. And in verses 26 through 39, Jesus rules over spiritual forces. In verse 26, the purpose of going to the other side of the lake all along. So, I mean, this story is basically Jesus saying, let's go to the other side of the lake. It ends with them going to the other side of the lake and then returning ultimately. But on the way, they have this storm. But after the storm, they keep going. They don't say, forget it. Let's just go back. It's not safe enough. They go to the other side. And when they get to the shore on the other side, 
where Jesus wants to go minister to Gentiles, who are simply, again, people who are not Jewish. This means that they're worshiping false gods. This means that they are uh, living their life indifferent to the true God. It means that they often hated Jewish people who sought to worship the true God. And Jesus wants to go there to minister to them. Because, again, the gospel is not just for a small subgroup of people. The gospel is for all people. Jesus wants to have disciples from all tribes and tongues and nations of the earth. And so Jesus wants to go here and minister and to call people from all nations. And when he gets to the shore, he finds a man who's naked and has been out of his mind his whole life, it seems. And people seem to be terrified of him, as we would be too. And, you know, if he were alive in our day, he would be behind bars and in some kind of institutionalized setting. But they were trying to do that. They were chaining him down, and they had guards around him, and he still escaped. And the demons would drive him out into the wilderness. This sounds terrifying. This sounds like the kind of guy you don't ever want to meet. And he's sitting there on the shore or waiting there on the shore when Jesus arrives. The demons knew who Jesus was. And so when Jesus stepped off the boat, they saw Jesus And the man cried out and fell before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And even that phrase should remind us of back in Luke chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel is telling Mary who Jesus was going to be. We we just affirmed in the Apostles' Creed on the screen behind me that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. And the angel Gabriel told Mary this was going to happen, and he even told her who he was going to be. She said, This child that you give birth to is going to be called Son of the Most High God. That's in Luke one thirty-two, And here, he's being called that by spiritual forces who hate him. But these spiritual forces, uh, Jesus commanded to, to come out of him. And you, again, see the compassion of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus, that he's seeing this man's destitute life and how miserable of an existence he has, being uh, filled with demons his entire life. And so Jesus compassionately casts these demons out. And what you can tell from verse 31 that these demons are begging Jesus to not send them away into eternal abyss, what that tells you is the demons know who's boss. The demons are not thinking, even for a second, that they are competing with Jesus. There is no contest here. Jesus rules over all all creation, including invisible creation, including spiritual forces. They knew who ruled them. There was no contest here. And so Jesus casts these demons out, and there are many demons. That's why he says legion. A legion in a a Roman army would have been thousands of soldiers. So does this mean there are thousands of demons? Possibly, not necessarily. It just means there's a lot. And that means this man's life is miserable. And so these demons come out of him, and what you you see is this man suddenly, for the first time perhaps in his life, being able to just stop and breathe and marvel again at who Jesus is. And you see in verse 35 that this man no longer is naked and out of his mind. He's now clothed and in his right mind. And what this passage is doing is giving a demonstration of, of Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, which says that we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of eternal light. 
And for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that is all of our testimonies. It doesn't mean we've, we've all been you know, filled with demons, controlled by demons, but it does mean that we have gone from darkness and from deserving eternal judgment to now being in eternal light, receiving eternal joy with God. We've been transferred from one kingdom into the next. And so perhaps there's someone here who's not a Christian and, and you're just here just seeing what we do and what we say and what we sing about and what we believe and how we practice our faith. And if, if that's you and you're just here to observe, we are so glad you're here. And we hope that you'll come back again. And we hope that for our church family, you'll continue to bring others like this. That it'll, it'll be a very normal occurrence for us to have people in our worship services who are just here to watch, just here to learn, just here to observe. And I hope that that doesn't ever make us uncomfortable. It makes us joyful that we get to put our faith on display uh, so that people will be called to the glory of, of Christ. But if, if there is anyone like that here who's just here to observe and, and see what we do, what we say, what the Bible says, we hope that you will ask us lots of questions afterwards. We hope that you'll find our church to be a, a friendly place. And we hope that if you're not sure whether you have been transferred from darkness into light, maybe you've had these questions every night as you go to sleep. You're just laying there thinking, what if I die? Where am I going to go when I die? I believe that there's a heaven. I believe there's a hell. I think I'm a decent enough person that I'll probably go to heaven. There's no such thing as a decent enough person. And so if you have questions about this, we hope you'll ask us about it. The Bible is not complicated when it comes to describing how we can have new life. We have new life when we realize that we are sinners before a holy creator God who made everything and rules over everything and we have sinned and rebelled against him. And when we come to grips with the fact that we can never claw our way back into God's favor and say, okay, well, now I've stopped sinning in such a way that now God will love me. When we can come to grips with that, that we can't ever do that, and we cast ourselves fully on Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who died a terrible death, and was buried, and then rose again. When you put your hope in him, you receive his perfect righteousness. You are declared righteous, declared just by God. And so now you are a child of God, and the judgment that you deserved is taken by Christ, and he paid for that on the cross. And so you no longer have to fear that you're going to have to pay for your own sin. This is the gospel. This is the clear message of the Bible, and we would love to talk to you about that more if you have questions about that. In verses 37 through 39, we see that there's really a third question that Luke is answering in this book. Again, the first one is, who is Jesus? The second one is, what does it look like to follow him? And the third question is, how did people respond to Jesus? And how do people continue to respond to Jesus today? And so in verses 37 to 39, as in nearly every other passage we've studied in this book so far, you see a response. You see people either following Jesus or turning away from Jesus. And in this passage, as with many others, you see both of those responses. Verse 37 shows us a negative response. And to tie this passage in with last week's passage, what we understand is that these people are those where the seed has been cast before them and then the birds came and snatched them up. There was no positive response here. These people wanted nothing to do with the gospel message. They didn't like what they saw, so they booked it out of there. And they wanted Jesus to book it out of there. Maybe they wanted their animals to be safe, unlike those pigs. 
Maybe they wanted their economic future to be prosperous and stable, and they figure, man, if all of our animals are running to the sea like these pigs are, we're not going to have any money to make anymore. Who knows what the reason was, but the bottom line was they were spooked out and they wanted Jesus out of there. This is a negative response. They turned away from Jesus. It's kind of like when you give someone a bite to eat and say, here, you should try this, and they put it in their mouth, and their first instinct is they gag and they spit it right back out. You're kind of like, really that bad? And that's kind of what their response was to Jesus. Like, I don't want anything to do with this. Get him out of our country. But verses 38 and 39, this man from whom the demons had gone, he wanted to be with Jesus. There's a positive response here. There's a, a magnetic effect that Jesus has on his life. He, he wants to go wherever Jesus is going to go. He wants to be with Jesus, be as close to him as he possibly can, and live life with him. And sometimes, as in the case of the disciples, for instance, that's exactly what Jesus wanted. He says, here, come and follow me. And, and as a band of people following Jesus, you can do more together than you can individually. But in this man's case, he's possibly the only Christian on that side of the Sea of Galilee now. And Jesus wants him there, spreading the news. Remember in other cases, and we'll see this even in Uh, the next few weeks. In other cases, Jesus says, don't go tell anybody who I am because they're Jewish and they're going to want him to call down fire on his enemies. They're going to misunderstand the message, basically. But in this case, he says, go tell everybody what God has done for you. What has God done for you? He set you free. Like we we say in, uh, and can it be, my chains fell off. That's your story if you are a child of God. And that was now this man's story. And so he said, go tell people that your chains have literally fallen off you and spiritually they've fallen off you. And go tell others. And so when the gospel takes root in our hearts, there's an immediate worship impulse and an immediate evangelistic impulse. You should want to tell people what Jesus has done, how he has changed your life. It should make you want to worship him as well. And so that's what this man did. And what's remarkable is Jesus says, go tell what God has done for you. And the passage is clearly demonstrating that Jesus is God. One more time, as if this is going to be the last time. It's not in the, in the book of Luke. But he goes away proclaiming how much Jesus had done for him. He's clearly equating Jesus with God, as we should as well, as this whole passage is designed to do. Martin Luther in the early 1600s, tapped into how we should respond to the reality of Jesus' authority over Satan and demons. We've sung this even in the last few months. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. For lo, his doom is sure. In the next verse, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. To the skeptic of Christianity, this seems like a bit too much, right? Like demons, like this invisible force, spiritual force that is just out there and it's ruining people's lives. Like this, that's too much. I can believe that there was a person named Jesus. I can even believe that he was a good person and he even died on a cross. I'll go that far. But you tell me that there's this invisible spiritual warfare going on behind the scenes. Absolutely there is. Yes, that is what the Bible tells us. And this portion of the Bible fits perfectly with what we know from other passages that 
we wrestle not with flesh and blood. Our adversary hates us because our adversary hates God. And so, as with Ephesians 6.10, not wrestling with flesh and blood, our enemy is not someone who can hurt us physically. Our enemy is someone who wants to destroy you spiritually and make you doubt the goodness of God. And so how should you, as a Christian, engage in this spiritual battle? Engage in not fighting flesh and blood. Let me give you four ways to do this. The first is to fortify yourself by sitting under the truth every week. It is not a passive thing to walk into this room every Sunday. You are coming in here to engage in battle, to have your soul satisfied in Christ, and to love other people who need to have their souls satisfied in Christ. So don't just walk in here and sit by yourself and sing to yourself and and treat this as just another time to get caught up in your Bible reading, as I did when I was like 10, and I thought, well, you know, I don't understand the sermon, so I'm just going to read my Bible. It's not the worst thing to do in a service, but let the truth wash over you. Let it sink down into your heart and then bear fruit. So fortify yourself by sitting under the truth every single week you can. Secondly, and I know I've made this application before, but some of you may not have been here to hear it. Even if you were, maybe you forgot that I made this application before, but that is sing truth loudly. We just sang, my chains fell off. Sing that to other people. Sing that to your own heart and to those around you. Third, read books that are full of truth, not error. There's a whole table of them out in the lobby. If you need one, if you don't have good books to read and you wish you could spend your winter nights doing something other than staring at your phone, take a book. I don't care if you don't pay us. We would rather you read good books. I was in Half half Truth. That's basically that too. Half Price books the other day. And in this book of Half Truth, Half Error, uh, the store of error, um, I was standing in the Christian section and I found a book that just the day before someone had said, oh man, you've got to get this book. And here's this book for eight bucks. So perfect. And I grabbed it, and I'm standing there staring at this book and a couple others in the Christian, you know, theology section. And I hear this lady say, Can you show me where? And I couldn't hear what the title was. And he goes, Oh yeah, we got a whole stack of them. And I hear him start walking over toward me. And I think, I'm interested to see what this is. And I see, and, and he picks off the shelf a copy of The Shack. And I thought, Ugh. I'm I almost walked after her and said, Ma'am, you don't want that book. Let me give you a Bible instead. Like any other book besides The Shack. Christians, if you have the shack, throw it away. If you want, go burn it in effigy in your backyard first. Or throw it in your fireplace. The shack is garbage. And so what I would say is, read books that are full of truth, not error. That will help you engage in this spiritual warfare. If you have questions about what I mean by that, I will happily take those at the door. And fourth, maybe this gets a little personal. Give money to the defense of the truth. In Clayton's pastoral prayer, he said, we give to the International Mission Board. We give to frontline missions. We give to people who are going into dark places. You know, one of the frontline missions missionaries is named Jonathan Farmer, and his ministry in Indonesia, which is one of the places that Clayton prayed for, is going from one little island to another in a little boat and meeting people who have never heard of Jesus before. And he is actively taking light into dark places. And we support him and his family every single time you give in the offering. We also give toward, because you give toward the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention, you give toward the defense of the truth through the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and on and on, 
those are places where the truth is going forth. I have a coffee mug for Southern, and I, I love our, our eight-year-old son, Grant, is learning to read. And so almost every question he asks is, does that say, and then he reads it. And so on my mug, it says, for the truth, the church, the world, the glory of God. And he read that to me the other day. And I said, yeah, that's what it says. It says it's for the truth. That's why the seminary exists. And you gave, if you gave in the offering plate today, you gave the defense of the truth through that institution and several others. So give money to defend the, the truth so that Christians will learn to read the books on that table instead of the books in half-price books. So if this passage is true, that Jesus rules over visible creation and invisible creation, that he rules over the storms both physically and metaphorically of life, that he rules over spiritual forces, what do I really have to fear? Who can really hurt me? Is there something in the present or in the future that has you constantly on edge? This truth tells you, relax. It's okay. God is seated on his throne. Behold him, the king of all creation. If this passage is true, what should I complain about? What part of my life is not in God's control right now that deserves being complained about? And the answer is nothing. Because Jesus is the king of all creation. Paul O'Neill became the president of Alcoa in 1987. By 1996, author Charles Duhigg relates, Paul O'Neill had been at Alcoa for almost a decade. His leadership had been studied by the Harvard Business School and the Kennedy School of Government. He was regularly mentioned as a potential Commerce Secretary or Secretary of Defense. His employees in the unions gave him high marks. Under his watch, Alcoa's stock price had risen more than 200%. He was, at last, a universally acknowledged success. This is the guy people were saying, who is this talking about safety for workers? At Alcoa, even though he's retired now, O'Neill's legacy lives on. Even in his absence, the injury rate has continued to decline. In 2010, 82% of Alcoa locations didn't lose one employee day due to injury, close to an all-time high. I love this part. On average, workers are more likely to get injured at a software company, animating cartoons for movie studios, or doing taxes as an accountant than handling molten aluminum at Alcoa. In other words, that guy did his job. That guy didn't deserve the skepticism that caused people to run out of that ballroom in Manhattan saying, sell all your stock, this company's going down the tubes in a hurry. The guy who did that later said, that was the biggest mistake of my life. The skepticism melted away because they saw who he was. And our skepticism, which often for us as Christians reveals itself in doubt and fear and complaining, melts away when we stand in awe of the king of all creation who rules over the storms and over spiritual forces. Let's close in prayer. Father, we delight to worship the God of all creation. And we are humbled that you would love us. And so we stand in awe of you and we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, bring conviction to our hearts. 
and also bring peace to our hearts, knowing that you are the God of truth and that all that you have said is right. In Jesus' name, amen.